I have an interesting way we can start today's op- episode off with. Um, the other day I was uh, in the shower, and as always when I'm in the shower, I'm thinking about Hakim and JT. Uh, but then um, <laughs> after soaping myself up real nice, uh, I felt like I needed to go to the toilet. So in that specific <laughs> hotel bathroom, <laughs> in that specific hotel bathroom, the, it was like an open style toilet where there's a hole in the ground and you have a shower and you have the toilet right next to you and you have the sink right next to you and it's all compact. It's not the shower isn't isolated by a glass door or it's not one of those integrated showers or whatever. And uh, that's not the type of shower I have at my home, for example. But there I needed to piss. So I decided to be extremely civilized. I took two steps towards uh, the uh, actual toilet and I uh, relieved myself there. But usually every time (laughs) when I'm I'm in the shower, it absolutely makes sense to me. And I don't think it's unhygienic to just let it go with the rest of the flow. And at that moment, (laughs) I realized we never actually touched on this. We talked so much about proper etiquette of washing your ass, but never necessarily about pissing. So two questions here. Are you a tribe piss while showering or hold it in and then shower later? Uh, number one. And number two, uh, for people with uh, peepees, like it kind of makes sense uh, to like do it that way. But if you don't and you don't have a, you don't have a peepee and the, the stream isn't strong enough and it runs down your leg, not sure how hygienic that would be. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Lovely way to start the episode, isn't it? <laughs> Take it away, guys. I mean, there is there is one team you didn't mention, which is Team P. Right before you go to the shower, like, hey, yeah, the that's the right team. Uh, but the, <laughs> isn't that the, but the water, isn't that the team that the adults water are on? inspires me. It's like dripping everywhere. Like, ah, okay. <laughs> Regardless of what you personally believe, you go. We won't hold it against you. <laughs> no, I'm being a dick. I'm sure there are lots of people who probably do that stuff. I mean, okay, at the end of the day, it's probably not that big of a deal, but I, <laughs> this is just one of those things where, like, you know what? Yeah. I just, I'll have the common courtesy to myself. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, no, I, 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 this is a very strange thing to start. <laughs> I'm genuinely lost for words. <laughs> well, give us, the, give us the medical perspective then. Is there, there's nothing wrong with okay. it, right? There's, there's no added... Yeah, no, no, it's it's like as long as you're healthy, for the most part, you'll just go into the drain and you're going to clean yourself afterwards, I hope, in case you got something on yourself. Um, but yeah. So. Well, there you go. You got Nick. It's <laughs> no, perfectly safe to continue your think... lifestyle. <laughs> no, you see, you yeah. see, this is the this is the hypocrisy of the deprogram. They are obviously op- uh, like passionate about shitting. And they are super opinionated about it. But Yugopnik brings up pissing one time. One time. And they're all fucking disgusted by it. Okay. Okay. I guess this is a shitting podcast, not a pissing podcast. Need to find somebody else to talk about pissing with. Look, look. To quote quote the Joker, okay? All poopy time is poopy time. (laughs) But not all peepee time is poopy time. Hello and welcome back.
back everybody to the D program. Today we're going to be uh, taking a, um, a server suggested idea, uh, one on class and discussions on class, what class is, what class do you belong to, what the fuck is a middle class, all this fun stuff. Um, thanks to our lovely um, Discord server members that suggested it. Um, I think we'll do on occasion a little bit. What the fuck? Ow. Did you guys hear that? Uh-uh. No. <laughs> my fucking, my uh, computer, for some reason, gave me some weird update. It was like, how to improve your PC audio. And it's like, da -da -da, fucking <laughs> jump scared me. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyways, my, what, I, what I was saying is before the fucking ear... Uh, yeah. Anyways, yeah. Uh, thank thank you very much to uh, all our um, uh, Patreon Discord uh, Discord members who suggest ideas every once in a while. We'll probably start taking a few uh, more of them uh, on occasion. Um, so uh, that's number one. Number two, something as a kind of a side note that I'd like to shout out. There's a bunch of people who are transcribing uh, books uh, that we're working on. Uh, not us individually. I mean, books that have been out of print for forever, like Albert Szymanski's works. Um, that people on the, our Discord server are transcribing. We hope to eventually compile them and then put them up for sale. Um, for like a very low uh, price just so that people can actually get them into their hands. We're not going to be making a profit off of these. Um, we want to, you know, get your guys' ideas on this. So people listening, let us know if you think this is a cool idea, if you're interested, um, and then eventually what out-of-print stuff you would like to see in the future. Uh, but we have already quite a large list. So, um, but yeah, anyways, class. What is class? Um, it is basically whatever the fuck you want. If you are a liberal, <laughs> it means fuck all. <laughs> Unless you actually have a foundation in a scientific analysis of class, which is usually the Marxist one. All the other ones are bullshit. Just how you right? hold a fork. Um, they, yeah, <laughs> basically. It's either that or some weird, like, ethno, uh, like, uh, cultural, you know, relation. Um, or based on something fucking nebulous, like, oh, you know, if you're between the ninth and 12th uh, percentile yeah, yeah, of income, yeah. then this, this bullshit. It will get into this. But yeah, um, so uh, the colloquial definition that people use is the one that you've heard, I think, the most com most commonly, which is upper class, middle class, and lower class. We're going to get into the, the, the nitty gritty of these in a second. I want to de delve into the scientific definition of class. Um, and if you will indulge me, I'm going to quote Lenin, um, my favorite pastime, quoting Lenin. Uh, in a, a great uh, beginning from 1919, Lenin said, Classes are large groups of people differing from each other by the place they occupy in a historically determined system of social production, by their relation, in most cases fixed and formulated in law, to the means of production, by their role in the social organization of labor, and, consequently, by the dimensions of the share of social wealth of which they dispose and the mode of acquiring it. Classes are groups of people, one of which can appropriate the labor of another, other, owing to the different places they occupy in a definite system of social economy. This is a great quote that maybe we can like take apart uh, slightly so people can understand a bit more. Um, the uh, bread and butter of the Marxist analysis uh, of class is this. Your class is determined by your uh, relations to the means of production. Now, what do relations mean? What are the means of production? Means of production, you know them. Uh, factories, land, uh, large amounts of natural resources, things that are privately owned, usually in capitalist countries. The relations to these means of production uh, basically denote whether you have to sell your labor power uh, in return for a wage, as so you are a wage laborer, you, but not... Not all wage labor is a result of earning a wage, but this is a deeper conversation for another time. Just for now, for simplicity's sake, we're going to say um, you sell your labor power in return for a wage. Uh, consequently, on the other side, um, th that makes you proletarian, by the way. Consequently, on the other side, if you are a member of the bourgeoisie, of the capitalist class, you don't have to work. You don't have to sell your uh, labor power to a capitalist in return for a wage. You own the means of production, and you are a buyer of labor power, and you use that in order to generate, uh, well, profits for yourself through extraction of surplus value. We've discussed this at uh, some extent in uh, earlier episodes. 
Um, but fundamentally, uh, the point that I like that uh, Lenin really fixated on is the two aspects, the historically determined system of social production. It's not something that, you know, just pops into air. This is something that develops slowly mm -hmm. as, a develop as a result of development of uh, class society. Um, and number two, it's in most cases fixed and formulated in law because usually that is the case. Um, the number one uh, protection that is given ever since the French Revolution uh, to all, uh, to all quote-unquote liberal democratic uh, countries, and by the way, this extends even to a further extent in, under fascism, is the protection of private property. It's the only sacred law under capitalism. You and your um, bodily autonomy and your uh, civil liberties and, uh, you know, to the end of it, all these are nonsense when compared to the fundamental, which is the right of the ruling class to property, whether it be their own that they've earned illicitly or yours, which they would take if they had, if they, if they wanted no to. No step on basically. snake. Mm. Yeah, no step on snake. Exactly right. Take the 2020 uh, George Floyd protest, for example. Like, George Floyd was murdered. Um, you know, people came out and protested rightly. And then this, they, like, burned a Wendy's, for example, or an Arby's, I think it was. And people they are tweeting, like, snack. solemnly, Arby's has fallen and stuff like that. Oh, Jesus and then, of course, they, they mobilized these, these militarized police and brutalized these people. That was the excuse they needed was to, to mm. have a destruction of some form of privately owned property. Yeah. And that's why exactly right. Yeah, the, that's the death of a human being matters very little. But mm -hmm. the second you break a window at a bank and all of a sudden, uh, yeah, the entire might of the capitalist state falls onto your shoulders. It's actually it's kind of funny and morbid in a way, but yeah. we're so normalized to seeing it that we don't actually uh, parse the the horror of, of, of what ends up happening. And this is almost like a, a weekly occurrence in the United States. Oh, yeah. Um, and worldwide. I mean, at this point, it's been going on for so long our relation to private property that we've deified it to an extent and it's almost as insane uh, sounding as I don't know three four hundred years ago somebody walking in a church or trying to burn down a church when you see a Wendy's go down it's probably uh, a common relation uh, that can be found between the two in uh, you know the reaction of the of the everyday person so it's not like somebody saw the Floyd protests they, they saw somebody burning private property and then like this cult of uh, like reptilian capitalists called up the cops and were like go fucking take them down no, it's innate. It's become a part of our culture to see the destruction of private property as the destruction of what we consider the most sanctimonious aspect of uh, of our reality, basically, which, as Hakim outlined... It's the modern blasphemy. Yeah, exactly. It's the modern blasphemy, but it's funny because uh, uh, pretty much the vast majority of every society is... Uh, uh, loses out on how well they could be living their lives because private property exists by itself. And yet mm. they very often go ahead in the defense, uh, go uh, step forward in defense of said private property. We'll talk about that later. Um, beautifully put, as always. Um, what I would like to also kind of get at, just so people uh, fundamentally understand, um, the three prong kind of uh, uh, analysis that uh, uh, Lenin delivers in this very short quote, which is very um, dense. It's beautiful. Um, as I, I like mentioned, the, booty, the huh? fixed and formula... 
Mm, yes, mm, my bluesy. Uh, uh, <laughs> fucking, <laughs> we're so stupid. Um, the like we said, the the fact that it's fixed and formulated in law, as we said, number one. Uh, number two, uh, that uh, there is a um, historically determined system of social production, and finally, the third thing, which I forgot to mention, which is uh, the share of social wealth, the dimensions of the share of social wealth that certain uh, classes have, and the way they dispose uh, of said wealth and the way they acquire it. Uh, you, as a working class person as a member of the proletarian class uh, you earn money and can deal with money in a very different way or be it capital in any other form it doesn't have to be just like cash money um, the way that you earn it and deal with it is very different from Bezos or Musk or Kissinger or any fucking American president or who's the fucking the insider trader people uh, the ancient witch Pelosi, yeah, and her husband, who's like, oh, there's going to be a chip shortage. I just so, I just so happily <laughs> <Yeah>. magic, <laughs> I, I divinated the fact. <laughs> yeah. $110 million up in fucking, yeah, it's ridiculous. But yeah, that's something you can't do as an average individual. Uh, now, the fundamental point of this is, how do you know what class you belong to? As we mentioned again, uh, relations to the means of production. Does that mean that there are only two classes? There's the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, the, the ruling class uh, or capitalist class, uh, class and the uh, working class. No, not necessarily. These two are better defined as large class groupings, right? Now, what do, what do we mean by this? Um, underneath the banner uh, or umbrella of these individual classes are certain subclasses that can uh, basically... they are related but not entirely part of, and they are subject to different rules, let's say. Um, I'll give two simple ex- uh, t- two simple examples. Um, the first one for the bourgeoisie and uh, subsection is the petty bourgeoisie. You've probably heard this term before. Uh, a different The difference between a petty bourgeois person and a bourgeois person is the uh, bourgeois person, a member of the capitalist class, usually owns large amounts of capital, be it through wealth, be it natural resources, be it factories, be it etc., etc., uh, meanwhile, in comparison, a petty bourgeois person owns something, but it's not big. It's not something that's substantial. It could be impressive for the area, maybe. But uh, an example is, for example, um, an example is, for example, Jesus, fuck my English. Uh, an example could <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, an example could be uh, if somebody in your community owns a grocery store, for example, right? And I don't mean a Walmart. I mean like a convenience, you know, like Seven Eleven type thing. Um, yeah, for example. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. A a restaurant uh, is another one. A mechanic, somebody who uh, himself most likely works, but also has a few people underneath him that he uh, employs. Usually uh, family labor is usually the most common, but otherwise it could be um, like, you know, four, five, six, maybe even 10 and 20 people that work underneath him. Um, A weirdly common one, sorry to interrupt, a weirdly common one here in the U.S. that we see a lot is like roofing businesses, um, Mm. usually owned by like one person or their family. And they'll employ like five people and they'll have, you know, a DJI Mavic or something that they fly to, to look at the roofs and they don't have a bunch of super intense equipment, but they do mm. own that company and employ a handful of people. There's whole businesses where they only roofie people. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, how, like, why do you oh need God. five people to roofie? Okay, I don't know. Okay. S- sorry to derail, but this is this thing that I've seen in like, a, what's it called? In American media movies and shit uh, before, which is like, you have a guy who's like dressed in like a hot dog costume and he has like an arrow and he has to throw it up in the air and, uh, you yeah, know, he like has a, to just, a science like, a, Oh, we have those here now. a fucking thing. Yeah, we have those here yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh my God. These are the end days. Oh, Christ almighty. It's sharing. <laughs> you will see one soon close to where you live. Oh my God. 
oh Jesus Christ. It's like okay, the what the fuck, the wacky inflatable two people, whatever the yeah, fuck. Yeah. That was that's at least kind of cute. Like oh look, it's fucking quirky, right? <laughs> now make it a human. Imagine, <laughs> now make it human. Imagine a human being fucking roasting in the sun, spinning a sign that says, "Oh fucking two dollar hot dogs. Our yep. meat is known." <laughs> <laughs> we can guarantee that it's minimum 82 percent pork oh god <laughs> oh fuck what are the other 18 percent hey just t- just eat it and enjoy preservatives I'm just and jealous that you know. can't use that marketing mechanism for podcasts if we could we would yeah. hire an army of uh, fucking sign spinners at least 60 percent content Forty <laughs> percent <laughs> fucking bullshit 40 percent homoerotic and uh, oh my god i mean hey uh Look, if, 50% certain, concentrated power of will. <laughs> oh, God, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, jeez. All right, anyways, back, back on track. Back, back on track. track. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that was the example that we gave. We'll delve into a bit, into it a little bit more uh, later on in this episode. But um, uh, So that's an example of petty bourgeoisie or petty bourgeois person. Meanwhile, underneath the banner of the proletariat, you can have somebody uh, who is the lumpen proletariat. Now, this gets a bit more uh, technical because there are certain theoreticians that didn't include the lump of proletariat as a member of the proletarian class. Um, that's number one. Number two, the attitudes towards the lump of proletariat have differed. First of all, what, what is the lump of yeah. Uh, the definition, what is a lump of proletariat? The easiest way of getting this point across is usually people who were either, for example, um, uh, currently active criminals, people who are unemployed or otherwise unemployable, uh, prisoners uh, or former prisoners that have basically went out, but they haven't uh, rejoined quote-unquote productive society. And I don't mean like, oh, you know, you work in a Starbucks. Uh, I mean, (laughs) not that there's anything wrong, but you understand what I mean. Like Mm. uh, a productive society as in they are not quote-unquote economically active. Um, so they're either on welfare uh, or they're just, uh, you know, living off of uh, relatives. They're not actually contributing uh, socially. Um, this is, by the way, a completely scientific definition. The, the, uh, there is no intention of uh, assigning uh, shame or something to, 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 to these things. Yeah. Uh, if you misunderstood me, that, that was definitely not my intention. Um, but that is what the lump of proletariat is. Uh, just a quick, I guess, if you guys will <laughs> indulge me. <laughs> um, the, the lump of proletariat, when you look at how... For example, Marx and Lenin spoke of them uh, in comparison to how Mao and the Black Panthers spoke of, of them. There is a certain difference. Marx was fairly negative. He considered these to be the most reactionary aspects of uh, the old social classes um, and basically those who are most um, most susceptible to reactionary influence, right? Um, and this is kind of this is kind of true, but not for the reasons that Marx, I think thinks, but he even changed his opinions later in his life. Um, This is true because usually these people are otherwise criminals or unemployable or unemployed or so on and so forth. These people are usually the quote-unquote most oppressed in society. That's how, for example, the the Black Panthers would would talk about it. Um, And in this case, this person, uh, if a particular fascist gang were to come to them and be like, hey, here's a sense of community and a regular source of income, uh, go and break that strike, then they're going to go do that because they they got something that they they were fundamentally missing in their material and social existence. Um, So that doesn't inherently make them reactionary, just makes them more susceptible to being reactionary. Um, And this is the opinion that 
uh, Mao was uh, very um, like fond of, uh, that they could be uh, utilized and quote-unquote proletarianized. Meanwhile, the Black Panthers, on the other hand, were completely in the other way. They thought that they could become the most revolutionary aspect of society, um, given the correct circumstances. Um, because otherwise, if they are not uh, brought into the fold of revolutionary activism, then they can be the most destructive, particularly in these uh, communities, minority communities, communities that are usually more oppressed or uh, of lower, lower socioeconomic status. Ooh, but that to relate back to class we'll get into it um, <laughs> yeah. um i'm just trying to give like a quick rundown so people are don't don't say like oh yeah. but there are other you know marks that mention it's like yes i know and by the way these uh, definitions even get broken down further but we're not going to get into that because it's not fucking necessary mm. uh, but yeah otherwise the number one trend and sorry i know i've been kind of going on but this is my last point the uh number one trend of capitalism is two things Number one, the centralization of capital, meaning that the capital gets concentrated in smaller, smaller hands. That's why you see uh, back in the day, many more industries are many more, uh, much more varied that nowadays are further and further consolidated into one or two or three conglomerates instead, number one. And number two, the uh, both uh, proletarianization and bourgeois bourgeoisification, if I can say that <laughs> nice. much. Um, oh my God, the boozification is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, of these other quote-unquote side groupings. For what I mean is the the petty bourgeois person who's oh I have a small little grocery store or, or fucking I don't know electronic store. These people are either going to enter into the ranks, sell them, enter into the ranks of the large bourgeoisie and become a regular, fully fledged member of the ruling class of the capitalist class. Or most likely, the vast majority of the time, and research has uh, proven this, uh, that they will actually slide into uh, being a member of the proletariat. They're going to lose their small investment, either they'll be bought out, uh, or they won't be able to compete. Uh, and as a result, they'll go under, and then they'll be forced to become a proletariat and uh, sell their labor power in return for wages like everybody else. Uh, likewise, for the lump of proletariat, it depends. Um, the tendency isn't the same, that all the lump of proletariat join the ranks of uh, quote-unquote productive proletarians. Um, but this is a very quick rundown of a very basic aspect of uh, Marxist class analysis. Um, now I'm going to hand it off to the boys <laughs> with a simple question. I'm so sorry for this. With a simple question. What class are you and how do you find out otherwise, from aside from the bullshit that I fucking said? Ooh, big question. Mm. Um, that's an interesting one for, like, if we're talking about YouTubers specifically, because it's so being a youtuber is so broad and you've got some people who mm. you know will make millions of dollars a year um the, some of the big channels but they still don't own anything really and then you've got you know the the little channels that make you know peanuts the way less than the minimum wage so how do you determine uh, in such a broad landscape what class you would be a part of and this may be too niche of an example for from much of our audience but I think it is is kind of useful. So if, let's say, let's take me, for example. I'm making my YouTube videos, and I, I'm doing fine. Like, I'm not, I, I don't struggle to pay the bills and keep the lights on, and I can afford food and stuff like that and take care of my family. But if YouTube decides to kick me off the platform, I have no recourse there. They are the, one who, the ones who own the platform or, you know, Alphabet, Google, whatever. So I don't own it. What does that mean for me? Say I'm say I'm one of the top, you know, five percent, or say I'm even top one percent of YouTubers. Does that make me bourgeois? No, I wouldn't say so because we don't own yeah. the platform. We don't own the means yeah. to host the content that we produce. Without that ability, we have no way to make the money that we currently make. 
Um, and that even that goes for someone like Mr. Beast, who's like, I don't even want to know how much money he makes. Um, now, that being said, YouTube is not their only source of income or of generating wealth. Uh, people like Mr. Beast have other ventures, uh, so and I don't want to speculate about what those are. But mm. if we're strictly talking YouTube, uh, someone, a YouTuber like any one of us, would not fall into like the bourgeois umbrella. I don't want to put words in your mouth. So what would you say? In my opinion, we, I have my own opinions, but I'll let you go. Pinko. We are like a um, franchise, but we do not then further on employ members of the proletarian class to work for us in the creation of what is defined as our product, which is content. Uh, so we're basically given a space by YouTube, which is the owner of the quote unquote means of production in the form of our channel. And in return, we are splitting profits, but the split is defined by the owner of the means of production, which is the server, which is the eyeballs, which is the internal YouTube marketing program, which is their connections with all the ads that are running through the platform, which then lead to revenue for the channel, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the relation between uh, us or YouTube creators in general and YouTube as a platform uh, are as such. and But they cannot necessarily, in my opinion, be defined as petite bourgeois because, uh, unless it's a channel which is rather larger and it uh, operates with the use of other people's uh, labor in order to grow it, to make it faster, to make it more expedient, et cetera, et cetera. So it would end up in the category of, you know, the self-employed um, lawyer, that has his own little firm where only he works uh, or a doctor that has their own little, uh, you know, uh, what do you call that? Uh, what does a doctor Practice, have? Yeah. Practice, mm -hmm. thank you, um, et cetera, et cetera, where they, uh, they have managed to find this, in my opinion, beautiful sweet spot uh, where they stay away from as much potential exploitation of the proletarian class without becoming bourgeois per se. And they're, uh, they're in a very interesting category because uh, they're um, who they ally themselves with in a uh, potential moment of uh, class conflict depends uh, not necessarily on their uh, material connection to either of the classes uh, as they have ostracized themselves from both, uh, but from the um, ideological current in which they find themselves at that point. So I would say they were, in that regard, kind of close to lumpen proles. But what exact word I would use to define them, I'm not sure. Cla in classical Marxism, they would probably, like a doctor with his own practice, a YouTube channel with, a, uh, with his own thing, would probably be petit bourgeois, but I, but it's so uh, it's so variable that uh, that it it depends. Hakim, what do you think? Yeah, uh, I think both of you guys uh, had very interesting perspectives. I agree bo with both of you. I, the closest analogy I like to think of is um, uh, imagine like uh, you owned a little stall that you sold something out of, um, and the area and the stall that you're selling out of was provided by a capitalist, right? And in return for them allowing you to have the stall to sell stuff, you have to give them a portion of the things, uh, yeah. a portion of each sale. Uh, so it's almost futile in a weird way, but mm, the yeah. uh, actual material basis of it doesn't change. You don't own anything. So at the end of the day, it is a proletarian um, uh, characteristic, let's say. But this is where the um, 
uh, a point of class aspiration versus class reality kind of clash. And this is where um, Lukács or Lukács, uh, I've heard both pronunciations, Gregory uh, Lukács, the Hungarian Marxist, or um, Gramsci, this is where they enter into the picture. You can be a proletarian, but you can have petty bourgeois class uh, class, uh, aspirations. Um, An example being perfectly is that you could be, for example, a YouTuber or a person like a lawyer with a private uh, office or a doctor with a private practice, um, and you have... Uh, petty bourgeois aspirations uh, for further growing this, having people work underneath you, and turning it into a business which you own, and as a result, can be uh, the 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 uh, you could um, profit off of the uh, labor of others. Now, this is interesting in the online sphere, but I think the best uh, analogy was the one I gave with the stalls. If we bring it back to our daily lives, uh, for example, JT, you worked a lot in retail prior. Mm. I work as a physician, uh, and you, Upnik, you work in a very corporate environment, let's say. Uh, maybe we should comment on that, because then that kind of is a, a very relevant to the people who might be re- listening. Um, so, for example, in, in my case, uh, as a, a public physician in public health care, uh, without any private practice or anything like that, I would personally uh, put myself uh, both in uh, aspiration as well as class standing as proletarian. Uh, at the end of the day, I do sell my way as uh, my labor in return for a wage. I own no means of production on my own. I don't employ anybody else. Um, there is no exploita- exploitation or extract- extraction of surplus value uh, that's occurring under uh, my hand, basically. Uh, now, when we enter into aspirations, many other doctors, they might want to have a private practice. So even they are, even if they're a public doctor within public healthcare, they'll have aspirations that are quote-unquote petty bourgeois for having their own little thing that they control and have people working underneath them. Um, but in the, the point is, and this is what's uh, something that we're going to delve into later, income doesn't factor in here at all. Because at the end of the day, you could be making $200,000 or $20,000. The very fact of your class standing, your class reality, is based on your relations to the means of production. Does that mean that uh, income isn't important? No. But it does mean that this stupid classification of upper, lower, middle class, it has no... uh, place in actual scientific analysis, sociology, anthropology, etc. We're going to get into that in a little second. But uh, JT, how about you, since you worked in retail, and I think that's something uh, a lot of people in the audience could um, relate to or may have had experience with. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So in retail, for anyone who's not aware, you are like take Best Buy, for example, it's a big box electronics store. Um, You wear a blue collared shirt, you stand around for eight or nine hours, and you help people find the electronics they're looking for. So to me, that's pretty straightforward. It's proletarian, and you have no real ability to become anything but that, because even if you were to get promoted within that box, you are still, you know, say at most like a floor manager. You still own nothing. You still technically employ nobody. Um, So while there is, you know, friction between those those positions, and I would say there is a distinction to be made there uh, within uh, the, the proletarian class, one is more of a cudgel for capital than the other, I would say that the average retail listener, you know, if you work at Starbucks, you work at Walmart, you work at Target or Best Buy or whatever, you if you're selling your labor for a wage, you don't own anything, you don't have any say in the company, you don't employ anybody, you are a member of the proletariat, of the working class. And that is squarely where you will stay in that kind of environment, in my opinion. No matter where your aspirations may lie. Yeah. And the more yeah. the more classically proletarian a, a job is, the lesser the chance for their potential petite bourgeois or even, God forbid, bourgeois um, uh, 
motivations can be actually realized. In my case, it's again, in my opinion, a bit simple, but the motivational factor uh, changes for one very particular reason. When you rise through the corporate hierarchy, you are let in, to say it very politely, into the spheres of knowledge about the inner workings of uh, larger corporations. So you're given information and you're given uh, abilities and skill to potentially replicate the model that you're seeing at a company in your own free time after you have gained enough capital to in this case, potentially create a startup, start a new company, etc., etc. So that's why the higher you are in a corporate hierarchy and the more information is shared with you, usually the more they have to pay you because you've already stolen all the info you need to potentially start your own thing, as long as you, of course, have the capital. So a typical corporate employee is proletarian, but again, the higher they go through the ladder, the higher the chances that their aspirations are going to be to become something else. Because yes, as I said, information, but we also get a peek into just how much the bourgeoisie doesn't know what the fuck they're doing. And you tell yourself, why am I doing this for this guy uh, when I can replicate his model, make it a lot better and a lot more efficient and make you know the crux of the money be the exploiter instead of the exploited. Uh, but if you do not end up, uh, you know, splitting away from the company, which almost never happens because nobody has the capital to do so, or the trust of other capitalists to potentially come as an investors, you go up through the hierarchy and end up managing people. And it might be interesting to our viewers who are going to be like, okay, but does now you're managing other people's labor. Aren't you then, because of this, becoming uh, bourgeois? But yes, to an extent, but no. You are managing other people's labor, but you still still do not own the means of production. Your labor becomes management. And yes, pro probably a listener that is a manager is going to say, actually, that's a pretty difficult job. And everybody who has managers will say, no, that's a stupid ass job. Like we, we are much better off without you. This is a debate that's been going on for eternity. Are we ever going to need leaders or can we, you know, have society run without leaders, blah, blah, blah. This would require like seven toms of books to discuss. But uh in my opinion, even corporate managers cannot be classified as petit bourgeois because they do not have uh, any control over uh, the means of production, but they are the definition of potential class traitors who have radical petit bourgeois aspirations and uh, therefore almost always side with the employer, with the owner of said uh, capital and said uh, means of production. So uh, for a manager, the chances of them being allied to their own class diminish the higher they go into the echelons of, uh, of corporate society. But it is not always the case. Uh, and can actually lead to very, very healthy work environments where management understands that they're being fucked and that their workers are being fucked. So they minimize labor output, but hyper oversell it to upper management and you know make it kind of a chill environment for their for their employees to say the least. So if there's a manager listening, please do that. That is a class conscious thing to do. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, when it comes to corporate, uh, the corporate world, that's basically it. Basically, a lot of proletarians that really don't want to be proletarians.
Yeah, that's beautifully put. I love the perspective of both of you guys. And I think that's why it's kind of nice uh, that we have this diversity in all of our work, previous work experiences and all of us also kind of being in, in touch with this fucking online space too because uh, we can have a bit of an opinion on uh, uh, on many aspects. But something that I want to get your guys' opinion on as well is uh, before we get into why the upper, middle class, lower class, like this is absolutely useless ca- categorization, why do you think they try so hard to obfuscate what class is? Why is there this motivated attempt to always kind of cover up and try to be like, oh no, like the mark, anything but the Marxist mm. definition, which is scientific and actually fixed and can be measured. What do you guys think? Well, I think it the in the United States, especially the notion of the middle class is incredibly useful because it's so vague. So anybody mm. making you know twenty thousand dollars to two million dollars a year sees themselves as part of the middle class, as part of you know the typical American dream achiever. You know they've. They work hard. They've earned their money, uh, but they're they're not bad people. They're not like those old robber barons and stuff like that. So it, it's very convenient that way. But also, it's it's convenient for those at the levers of power to be able to say that look, we're looking out for the middle class, and that just happens mm-hmm. to be whoever is listening. So that's very convenient for them. But they can also use it as um, as a bit of fear mongering and say, look, these people that are the, the lower classes, they're, they're trying to take your cookie. You've worked so hard for it. Uh, and they, they're just, you know, the immigrants are coming in and they're, they're taking your jobs and stuff like that. So if you see yourself as part of this mythical middle class, then the politicians are always talking to you. The politicians know this and they take advantage of it by, by doing some fear mongering. You know, it's like the Fox News thing where you've got millionaires paid by billionaires to convince people making $100,000 a year that people making $19,000 a year are coming for them. <laughs> mm. Yeah, honestly. But generally, really beautifully put. But yeah, um, something, <laughs> you know, it's a lot more, um, what's it called, uh, transparent in the U.S., these attempts. Uh, I think most of the world, uh, because the United States doesn't have a quote-unquote old world baggage, if we can even put it that way, um, like aristocracies and nobilities and all this kind of bullshit. Um, so uh, their attempts are, they're not actually, they're based on ba- only wealth for the most part, right? Uh, unlike, for example, if you were go- to go into France or the UK, where there are, w- were previously established uh, titles, ruling mm-hmm. titles, for example, uh, or in many of uh, parts of Asia, where there was uh, like um, uh, massive land ownership that directly related to uh, local ruling structures, etc., etc. Um, but something also to, to, to kind of add is the reason that they try to obfuscate this so much, the reason that they exactly, as JT said, the billionaires to the millionaires to the 100,000 persons to the $19,000 a year persons coming to, for, for, for the bullshit, um is because this keeps the discussion kind of in like a uh around like around the um merry-go-round is that what the fuck it's called it just keeps <laughs> yeah. circling in on itself it doesn't actually get anywhere because yeah. if you don't have concrete definitions right exactly a snake that uh, you open, please remind me what does it do i'm sorry I, I, it eats its own ass and it's there he said it he said it pog he said it take your shots everyone <laughs> These nuts. These <laughs> nuts. He said it. <laughs> Another shot. <laughs> All right. Oh, fuck. Okay, now, JT, say something homoerotic so they will get tied up. Uh, anyways, uh, um, say something wrong. I'll correct you. <laughs> <laughs> I need to mess up an idiom. Uh, anyways, uh, but my, my, my point being is that, uh, like an interesting anecdote, but uh, Al-Ghazali, who is a um, very uh, prominent uh, Muslim, uh, like polymath, uh, he said... Uh, 
um, uh, basically on on discussions uh, in general is he say if he's talking with somebody and he can't strictly define he can't he doesn't have strict definitions he immediately stops the conversation he mm-hmm. just walks away because he's like I'm talking to the Philistine and this kind of really goes for this the, the, um, this conversation as well the reason that they s- s- try so hard to not uh, concretely define what class is and keep it nebulous is because they know that once you have a concrete definition of class then people will fundamentally see that these classes have diametrically opposed interests and when that happens that makes the class struggle a lot more prevalent i think that's what's so interesting about for example um the uh, uh concept uh, cockshot spoken a little bit about this um of uh, if you were to get a labor voucher instead of direct currency there's a reason that money is the the universal exchange medium uh, if you were to get a labor voucher under capitalism and you worked let's say uh, 10 hours but you got four hours then this is such a uh, you're basically getting a, a revolutionary pamphlet every time you get paid yeah right it's uh-huh. so evident that you're being fucked somewhere <laughs> not yeah. the way you want it either <laughs> <laughs> um, in 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 what you get, what you're being paid in your compensation, um, and there's no other aspect of oh you know you're working for society it's going to a national or or a social fund that will you know help blah, blah, blah. no none of this shit it goes to you know the guy on the fucking hill in the ivory tower and all that bullshit right so my my point being is that uh, the obfuscation is a directed attempt by the ruling class in order to keep things vague so that you no matter where you stand like exactly what JT said if you make two million dollars or you make ten thousand dollars a year. Um, you will always see yourself as whatever the middle way is, right? Because the the lower class that sounds fucking icky, but the um, ruling class or the upper class that sounds you know like a, a fucking up nosed and 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 uh, arrogant and yeah. and old money and all. And I'm not that. No, I'm not. You know, I'm fun. <laughs> I'm two percent Portuguese. <laughs> I like peppers. <laughs> like this, <laughs> right? So. You end up with this bullshit. Uh, But yeah, so it's a directed effort to keep you, uh, well, not class conscious. Mm. Um, Something to also define, because this conversation is very big. I don't think one episode is is enough on this. This is very basic intro stuff. Uh, But one other aspect of this is um, class when you compare it, for example, between the imperial periphery and the imperial core. Um, A working class person in New Jersey versus a working class a working class person in Bangladesh have fundamentally differing experiences in life, right? Despite the fact that their relations to the means of production both situate them within the proletarian class. Now, there are some people who like to be dismissive of the Marxist characterization because of this. It's like, oh well, you know the um the 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 New Zealand uh, no New Zealand um that actually works as well. But the New Jersey worker uh, versus the Bangladeshi worker, they have nothing in common aside from this weird nebulous fucking claim that Marx uh, makes. So what use does this uh, classification really have? Um, and the standard rebuttal, rebuttal to this uh, nonsense is you need to fucking read, liberal. <laughs> um, because <laughs> Marxist analysis of this stuff didn't stop with Marx and just saying, oh, okay, you know, uh, proletariat, bourgeoisie, relations to means of production. Um, you have writers across the board from uh, Argiri to Zach Cope to uh, Torkin Lawson, I think, Torkil Lawson, excuse me, um, all, uh, including also, by the way, Engels and Marx and Lenin on concepts of the labor aristocracy, which is another further uh, depth to this conversation that regardless of whether you are proletarian or not, you could be part of a particular stratum within society, uh, which is slightly more privileged by the ruling class for reasons, which we will get into in a second. I think we also delved into it in a, lightly in previous episodes. But before we get into that, I want to ask particularly of you, Gopnik, class identity or can class be an identity what do you think it's extremely complicated and i believe with the birth of capitalism and the death of monarchy we 
had enough fervor to see where society could go if class identity was uh, the forefront of uh, the way one uh, saw themselves. Because back in feudalism, uh, we were not only told but reminded on a daily basis and reprimanded if we forgot of where exactly we are in the strata. Uh, and after uh, post-feudal revolutions, uh, it took quite a while for the capitalist to realize that repeating and smashing the concept that I am better than you in the head, heads of those who you consider yourself a better off would uh, be extremely counterproductive and would lead to further and further revolutions uh, which uh, divided uh, the spoils down to smaller and smaller ones and it ended up uh, not being as profitable indirectly. Ba basically what I'm saying is they realized that uh, uh, by completely ostracizing themselves from uh, the proletarian classes, uh, they will allow said proletarian classes to form a cohesive potential identity and therefore rise up against them the way they did against the, at that point, completely dehumanized uh, images that they had of old aristocracy. Uh, and that's when they started inventing things like what we previously talked about, the middle class, so that you, you know, look at Joe down the street that bought a Mercedes instead of uh, looking at the guy who owns Mercedes, the company. Uh, but that's only step one, especially in like well-developed, extremely consumerist, obsessed societies. We have switched from the idea of identifying with uh, the fellow line worker at work or the fellow cab driver or the fellow pool cleaner or the favorite the, the favor secretary at work uh, into identifying as this all-knowing, almost godlike uh, figure being, which is defined as the customer. So we have stopped concentrating so much on our relationship to uh, how stuff is made, the means of production, but a lot more with how we consume. So whenever you enter the shop, you are given the opportunity to, for 10, 15 minutes, three hours, feel like the member of the upper strata of society while other fellow proletarians are running around you and measuring you up so you can buy a nice new suit. So middle class identity, consumer uh, slash uh, customer identity. Uh, then if we go down the line, thousands of different subcultures and subgroups that develop in order to, that have developed sometimes organically, sometimes very, very, in a very organized manner, be it by the State Department or by whoever else in uh, different parts of the world in order to dissuade people from concentrating on class identity. So uh, said simply, too many forces are aimed against uh, a person identifying uh, mostly with their relation to, uh, to the means of production, but also we have not had uh, a big enough uh, wake-up call in recent times when it comes to just how tiny we are in comparison to those who hold all the capital, that there's not enough fervor to kind of wake up this sort of identity the way that uh, national identity, just to say like a very simple, stupid example, uh, would. 
I would like to bring uh, attention to the fact that uh, Yugopnik said both uh, Joe down the street and wake up. So, Joe, wake up. <laughs> wake up, <laughs> wake Joe. Up. <laughs> <laughs> There's subliminal messaging all throughout these episodes. You guys have no idea. No, it, it, <laughs> Class identity is super fucking boring. It's 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 uh, it's just it doesn't have the spunk. What I need to like Bill, who I have to go to work with every day. Jesus fucking Christ! But <laughs> for example, consumer identity makes Consum- me feel like I'm like I'm a god every time I go to the fucking Gap. Mm. Or as Hakim beautifully <laughs> said, a middle class identity makes me feel like I'm not like one of those poor's, which are usually brown, and I'm not like one of those fucking. Uh, Posh fucks that eat monkey braids. It it makes you feel comfortable, but having a strong class identity, uh, sense of class identity, class consciousness, which would be a much better term than class identity, but you get my point, uh, is is just not fun. It reminds you constantly every fucking day that you're getting fucked from all sides and nobody wants to do that people want to forget and go on with their fucking lives and class consciousness doesn't let you do that. That's what makes the more liberal idea of class identity is so easy and appealing and comfortable. It's your middle class. Everyone below you is, and in the lower class is a criminal. Everyone above you probably wears a top hat, and I don't own a top hat, so I guess I'm middle class. And that's that's it. That's all you ever have to think about. It's very easy. Yeah, exactly right. And I think that it goes for the mo- for pretty much all liberal. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to even say theory. They don't have theory, yeah. but I mean, you know, like liberal outlooks. It's the lowest possible or the the simplest most stupid uh, possible way of explaining something um just because oh you know it, everybody can easily grasp it hey yeah well you know what <laughs> it's difficult to grasp gravity but it still exists so you know it's it's <laughs> just because something is simple doesn't necessarily mean that it's true but going on something that i'd like to mention also about the cl- class solidarity point is that there is something that uh, within class consciousness um, that is on the opposite side that we rarely um, kind of uh, recognize, which is the supreme level of class consciousness and class solidarity between the ruling class within mm. itself, right? The, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the capitalist class, the ruling class, the, the bourgeoisie, the people in power, they fundamentally understand what their interests are, where they lie, and that's why across the board, no matter what you see, you'll see the same stuff, which is the within the ruling class of a particular country, there is unity on the fact that they want to protect um, uh, property rights. There is unity on the fact that they want privatization and, and quote-unquote market liberaliz- liberalization and, all, and so on and so forth. There is unity on the fact that internationally between governments that uh, be they comprador or otherwise there is this tacit understanding that the the true benefit that's derived for uh, a country isn't the one that benefits the lowest quote-unquote common denominator uh, or the vast majority of people it's the one that benefits the ruling layers of both countries right um, and in and in a way, we'll talk about this a bit in the labor aristocracy segment, uh, how this can kind of slowly and slightly be siphoned off, only partly uh, to the uh, working class or the proletarian class of a particular imperial core country as a form of placation. Uh, but we'll get into that. Uh, just generally, and though. They're, and they're united in so much disdain towards the proletariat that is it's always very funny to me because there's always this conversation about how you know uh socialists or uh poor people in general are these um, motherfuckers who are just jealous that's why they hate rich people etc etc have you sat at a dinner table with people who own 
firms and they know they're not being recorded and they're um, like in a in a comfortable environment try try talking to the, to them about social safety nets or about uh the idea that you cannot just fire somebody uh on day three after they've been employed mm. or the idea that everybody should get a raise at least i don't know once every three years maybe they will lose their fucking shit because they not only believe what they're saying but they understand their position in said hierarchy and they're either very honest about it or they explain it away to themselves with different reactionary ideas etc etc it's very important to remember what Hakim said that their identity with class is arguably the strongest aspect of their identity in general these motherfuckers are CEO first Father second, okay? They live this fucking idea. Have you seen two motherfuckers, like a, a, a group of 20 people, and they're like 18, are like, okay, they're making decent money, but they're nothing special. But two of them are like crazy fucking money. And when they smell each other, these dudes will not leave each other's fucking uh, eyes for the rest of the weekend if you're going on vacation or something. They fucking love each other. They feed off of each other. And they I see each other as closer to equals because nobody else can be equal to them because they haven't figured out the fucking game you know and and if we had one ounce of that fucking uh, ounce of that fucking solidarity it'd be so you know learn from your enemy you know what i'm yeah no that's a very important point that you got made Uh, i'd like to also add that when the political agitation of the uh, capitalist class the ruling class uh even though they it's not spearheaded by the entire uh class of uh capitalists it nonetheless the the gains that they win for themselves benefit the entire ruling class what do i mean by this the perfect example in the united states is tax cuts uh even though the group of uh people who are spearheading the the move to reduce taxation uh, overall for a certain income bracket uh it isn't every single capitalist in the country um, but nonetheless, it affects and it benefits all of them. And that's why this is the fundamental nature, uh, even internationally, why you see, for example, American, Israeli, and Saudi um, uh, policymakers or uh, leaders shaking hands and, you know, uh, t- uh, bo- uh, bopping elbows. What the fuck do you Americans say? Uh, bumping, <laughs> yeah, bumping, bumping elbows. Bumping elbows. Oh, that was <laughs> <laughs> but you understand what I mean, yeah. Um, that, the reason that this happens is because at the end of the day, they ha- there is a fundamental class solidarity that exists prior to any other identifier, be it uh, religion, be it ethnicity, be it uh, culture, whatever you have, language, um, nationality, uh, even fucking social outlook for the most part, um, uh, the class outlook triumphs all um basically it's the old saying money has no religion but we're going to get into that and it's its own episode yes go on they're so united in their derision and their hatred and in the past their fear of the proletariat of the working class the fear not so much anymore especially in the united states Mm, they've very effectively won that kind of war against class consciousness but don't think for a second that these people don't understand what class consciousness Mm. is and what class warfare is. So, like, take Warren Buffett, for example. I pulled up a quote because I remembered he said something about it. And here it is. Warren Buffett says, There's class warfare, all right, but it's my class, the rich class, that's making war, and we're winning. Like, see, they come out and say it. Like, they're aware of this stuff. They know that they need to be united because there are fewer of them, but they do have tremendous power. 
to sculpt the narrative to make sure that the you know this the pores the the dirty lower classes the unwashed masses don't develop class consciousness because then it would be lights out for them their fear of living like us yeah. terrifies them so much that it unites them yeah yep. it's mm. beautiful please yeah, sorry exactly right yeah uh, earlier when i said when i was at the tail end of what, what, I, what i was saying i just kind of very quickly said yes go on i meant go on jt but it sounded very rude <laughs> i did not intend <laughs> no, that I, I apologize don't worry i didn't take it that way <laughs> I mean, but yeah but very very interesting point the the, the warren buffin uh, buffin fuck me i can't speak i'm so sorry <laughs> but yeah very very interesting and, and useful point i think an interesting uh thing that we can uh segue into as well is how do classes telegraph their power Right, something that was very interesting that JT said is that they know that they are fewer, the ruling class, the bourgeoisie. They know they are fewer, but they have this, all this power that um, makes them well, basically the the, the masters of current society. Um, and the thing is that their class solidarity and class consciousness is more or less uniform. They understand what they're doing, even though on occasion there can be some conflicts within a country's ruling class uh, or bourgeoisie, and then internationally there can be certain conflicts. At the end of the day, they are united in one thing. That's why the entire capitalist world united against the Soviet Union. Um, this was not, ooh, because they hated the fucking, you know, right? No, it's because the Soviet Union stood for something very fundamental, which is the abolition of private property and uh, the dismantle of capitalism for the construction of socialism. Um, this leads interestingly into the point of the, as mentioned before, how classes telegraph their power. Gramsci, again, we're not going to get into Gramsci today, that will be his dedicated episode, but uh, Gramsci had the very interesting idea, which is very uh, apt, I would say, very accurate, that um, uh, a concept of cultural hegemony, which uh, can very loosely be uh, delivered in one line, the uh, dominant ideas within society are those of the ruling class. Now, the way that this is done is, of course, uh, you've all experienced it. It's through the schools, it's through workplaces, it's through the uh, all the media outlets that the ruling class owns. It's through basically every single aspect of law, be it uh, within civil law uh, or um, within uh, more uh, complicated aspects, like, for example, if you own a company and the stuff that has to do like tax law, tax code, things like that. Uh, every single aspect is supposed to reinforce both um, uh, innately, uh, not, not innately, excuse me, both implicitly and explicitly, the uh, supremacy of the capitalist ruling class um, and their ideas being enshrined into law, mm -hmm. being enshrined into education, being enshrined into uh, the uh, social perspectives and attitudes uh, and media that's presented to the vast majority of people. That's why, for example, in the United States, uh, or not even just the English language world in, the me in general, you will see, uh, for example, in, in, in movies and TV shows, um, there will be a bad guy, but there will not be a criticism of capitalism as a, uh, as a system, right? Even if there is some, uh, you know, uh, like, oh, you know, um, something bad that the United States government did, for example, hypothetically, it's always, oh, a small segment, and they went rogue, and the president didn't know, no. and oh, fucking, you know, they always <laughs> make, her, make, it, make the president a black woman just to, and, <laughs> you know, so they could, yeah. right, um, skirt that stuff. But uh, what I mean is... Or even, uh, if, even, even when it's, uh, sorry, just super quick, on, yeah. and even if if there's like legit criticism and they're like oh my god this thing isn't working uh and there's always like two good guys that that split and it only ends up with one good guy who wants to change that with slow reform and the other one who wants to blow something up and and change it that way and then they point at him and they're like look like yes we're horrible but 
the radicals are much worse because they want to make changes yeah. quick and quick change is scary. That's like 80% of fucking yeah. the, the bad guy, good guy arc when it comes to like addressing systematic problems. Exactly, and and the thing is, uh, the media aspect to media analysis again can be its own episode. But um, the point being is that the even if you were to deliver some sort of uh, criticism of capitalism, uh, number one, it's always toothless. Number two, it's so obfuscated, it's so uh, muddied that you can't. It's never clear. It's never an actual like compare that with, for example, certain aspects of Soviet cinema, which you can tell it has an anti-capitalist message. Right, some uh, select uh, cinemas outside the United States, for example, uh, some movie, Italian movies, some Spanish movies, particularly Latin American, um, have uh, aspects of this as well. Um, but at and the end of the day, it's not like there's no no market for it. Literally, yeah. the most class conscious film I've seen in years, Parasite, won fucking every yeah. award at the at the Oscars. There is a market for it, and the fact that it's not being satisfied means that there's active obfuscation of creating such movies. Or when they do make them, again, it's super vanilla and they don't address how said problems could be potentially changed. Mm. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's also never a, a, a discussion of the potential solutions or what, uh, no, I want to say resolutions, but basically what is the next stage? What is what is to be done? To, to, yeah. <laughs> what are we about to do? To quote Lenin. <laughs> but Nothing <sorry>. too wild. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, it never gets to that point. It always just is an impotent criticism of the system and it stops there. Yeah. It stops at nihilism, uh, which is the very interesting, very telling of the capitalist system. Again, not to bring in Mark Fisher's and all that nonsense, but... Uh, it's easier to to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism um, for for them. But moving away from media a little bit, if you guys will allow me, um, the um, God, I want to say something else. Fuck, I forgot what the fuck I was gonna end the the, the um, uh, media point with. So let's pretend that I said something profound to end the media <laughs> media point with. Yes, well, well clap said, for well me. Said. <laughs> well said, JT. Do agree? Well, well you. said. Yes. Oh yeah, uh, very thank well you. Thank you very much. Um, but yes. I think this can this can also segue us into um, a very quick discussion of labor aristocracy because this will be its own episode. But just so people know that we mentioned it here, uh, the concept of a labor aristocracy is uh, one that was analyzed even as far back as Engels in the middle of the nineteenth century. Uh, so it's nothing new, but uh, the basic idea is like this. Within certain working classes, there is a privileged uh, strata, privileged layer, which gets a slighter, a slightly larger bit of the pie, a few more crumbs, which allows them to live slightly more comfortably. And as, as, as a result of this dulls their um, class consciousness, their ability to organize, uh, and ter- make, turns them from revolutionary to um, complacent. Um, and usually these people tend to be in the uh, more authoritative positions of the working class. So they can be trade union leaders, uh, like in the example of Britain. Uh, they could be members, uh, quote unquote, um, like a working class um, political uh, figures within parliamentary systems. Um, they could be uh, those with more technical um, uh, specification or technical expertise within industry, etc., etc. Um, the managers the- I mentioned. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly. As you mentioned, and these people, um, they at first existed as a small layer um, and then enlarged um, as a result of the threat of the Soviet Union, of course, along with social democracy. Um, In fact, there is interesting work um, that links the concept of uh, labor aristocracy and social democracy together as a uh, single, basically, development, um, of which rather than having a militant working class movement, the ruling class 
chooses to give up a segment of their power and privilege uh, and wealth in order to placate the working class uh, so that they lose their revolutionary potential um, and thereby, uh, through development across a generation or two, um, change the local material conditions of the working class so that their material interests change from being those uh, that are the same with the vast majority of the international proletariat to being the same as those of their national bourgeoisie. Because the more money that the national bourgeoisie has, the more money they put into their social democratic system, that they can uh, keep this working class comfortable uh, beyond the point. Now, there are criticisms of this idea, uh, but uh, that will be entered into on its own episode. Um, and like I said, the rise of the Soviet Union kind of also helped um, uh, spur this uh, development. Now, the reasons that their interests are uh, opposed, even though they're also proletarian, is exactly as I mentioned, um, because, for example, their healthcare uh, and their com- consumerist society, which again links into the concept of class as a, as a, as a um, identity, um, all this is subsidized by the working classes of the imperial periphery. Uh, so even though you're a proletarian, you are directly benefiting at this point from the exploitation of other proletarians and other parts of the world and if that exploitation ended then your living standards would take a dip um, and uh, as a result then this can kind of shake the uh, basis of uh, international solidarity but it does not all of a sudden negate their proletarian um, nature if that makes sense um, a, a bunch of interesting he just theory. said something super important he just said something super important noticing the nuance of your uh, class uh, position in uh, extremely poor developing country and seeing that there is a nuanced difference between a member of the working class in, uh, I don't fucking know, Norway, that nuance should be noted. But if we go down the rabbit hole of then dividing and saying that they are counter-opposed and that uh, they're class enemies, the the, the proletarian of Norway and the proletarian of, uh, of the Philippines, in my opinion, correct me if I'm wrong, but is this is a rabbit hole in which like no move that no movement can be fucking born out of in my modest opinion it's 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 very toxic uh and uh just to kind of um uh, lead into this slightly more uh if you are interested we're gonna make a, a dedicated episode to this in the future but uh, if you want some introductory reading into this then i highly suggest you look into the work uh, of um, uh, Lauren, um, oh, excuse me, not Lauren, Lawson, uh, Torquil, um, or is it Torquil Lawson? It's always, I see it both fucking ways. I think it's Torquil Lawson. Um, the work of Zach Cope, uh, Emmanuel Argiri, um, uh, John Smith, who wrote Imperialism in the 21st Century, um, and I have a dedicated uh, video on unequal exchange, value transference, etc., etc., um, like book recommendations, which you can uh, consult. Um, there's also a, a book called um, uh, Unequal Exchange and the Prospects of Socialism, uh, which is very good. There's a free PDF of it online, which can give you also slight introduction into this and, and the fundamental uh, or the rudimentary math uh, intro into this. Uh, but yeah, uh, that aside, this will be its own episode. So this was just so people know it's mentioned. And another, th- another thing that can be its own episode, but just so people know it's been mentioned, the concept of intersectionality. Uh, which, oh, fuck, it's a headache because there's so much to talk <laughs> about. But um, there are certain class realities and there's political outlook. Certain people, so like workers, they're fully proletarian, but they're conservative in outlook. Other uh, workers are liberal in outlook, so they're basically both the same thing. <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> um, but the, the, my point being is why is that the, 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 the case? Um, why, for example, the why is the perspective different if, for example, you're a black woman versus a white man? How do these things um, uh, develop? 
uh, and of course, um, <laughs> Yugopnik is being absolutely fucking stupid in in our dog. He, he just keeps writing. I was cheek. like, where is he? Yeah. <laughs> where is he? Trolling him on? So hard. So, so we have the, the notes open, and I'm pasting some shit just to see if uh, I'm gonna annoy one of the guys. And I yeah. finally succeeded. I have done this many an episode, and this is the first time I got them triggered. So it's fucking. <laughs> I was wondering what was going on because I had the yeah. doc minimized and I was like, what is Hakeem stumbling over? It's not that hard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm just spamming liberal, 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 yeah, liberal like, over, and over che- everything. And that and cheeky breaky, which to this day I still don't know what the fuck that means. Nobody does, my friend. Yeah. All right, I'm erasing this garbage. Fuck me, right? <laughs> Jesus Christ, make me sound like an absolute idiot trying to talk about intersectionality. It's like, oh, this is racking his brain. But yeah. It's basically the experience of talking about intersectionality in most like Marxist reading groups. Yeah, no, you're completely right. It's such a fucking headache. But yeah, my point being, I'm going to give, unless you guys have something you want to say specifically about this, there is a point of intersectionality, but the core of the intersection is class. Uh, class is the most fundamental um, uh, contradiction within this. Uh, that doesn't take away from the fact that race is important, sex is important, etc., etc. Um, but also, if you f- solely focus on, for example, race relations, then you'll never get at the fundamental issue, which is the economics that underlie it all. That's not yeah. to say that this is a vulgar econ- economism, but to say that at the end of the day, um, to quote... Um, uh, was it uh, Fred Hampton that said uh, we can't fight capitalism uh, with uh, black with capitalism? Black capital. yeah. We, yeah, exactly. We fight capitalism and then Jay-Z said, fuck off. Yes, we can. And uh, <laughs> bought oh 7,000 yachts. Oh, Jesus Christ. Well, he'll be, I don't know, by the revolution. They all will be. Anyways, um, because oh, of class. Cut that. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, but cut yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Yes. Yeah, I made a video on it. Go watch it if you're so inclined. Mm. City boy, city boy. You, you don't, you don't know what I'm doing, of course, because you're no. not on TikTok. Jesus nope. fucking yeah. Christ. I'm sorry. The, the, this is these are this is the new class divide that actually matters, not this fucking <laughs> Marxist bullshit. It's people who have TikTok and people who do not have TikTok, and you people deserve to be put into fucking work camps because Jesus if I get Christ. another stale, if I get another stale meme that you're forwarding me through. <laughs> Fucking Instagram that I've seen <laughs> 70 years ago over on TikTok. I oh swear God. to God, I will create a new class ideology, which now I'm joking, but uh, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about. Uh, to a lot of people, class is everything, but we need to stick to these uh, very rigid, maybe they sound boring, but uh, scientific definitions in order to not allow uh, fluidity, which is very beautiful and lovely in other uh, social factors factors of life and the factors of identity and so on but class is material class is clear-cut i'd like to formally apologize to yugopnik for sending him stale memes all the time so uh yugopnik could could, could you please hold d's for me <laughs> <laughs> hold d's <these> nuts <laughs> got him got him oh Oh, fuck. I am twelve. Oh, <laughs> oh my god, these these fucking <laughs> my, my audio peaked to shit. Mine too. I'm so sorry. Oh fuck, I love it. I love it. Anyways, uh, back from being absolute children. <laughs> the, <laughs> the state of this fucking podcast. All right, one more thing I think we should hit before we go because this is a comment that I'm sure all of us have gotten, and I've gotten it a lot recently on my uh, middle class video that I put out um, a couple weeks ago, and that is. 
What about the people who have some spare money to invest in the stock market? And what about those people who have enough money to buy like a single investment property? They, so are they a landlord? Are they a parasite? Are they the capitalist class for investing in the stock market? How do we handle those people? This is uh, I don't like these these kind of comments because there's so much there's so much missing um, like there's there I don't want to say ignorant but the, the, they're missing information on so many aspects mm-hmm. that it becomes like a long answer but I'll, I'll try to kind of cover it real quickly uh, the first one is number one uh, just because you have a uh, a property that you live in or, or what have you uh, this is misunderstanding the concept of private property and personal property which is uh, uh, deliberately obfuscated under capitalism because they want to they want you to think these two things are the same thing they're not uh, but uh, furthermore. Uh, if you have a small like rental property and you have some money in the stock market or something, um, of course, it's not like you don't have $30 million in the stock market. You probably have a few hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars, right? You are a working class person with petty bourgeois aspirations. That doesn't all of a sudden change your class background, right? You still, at the end of the day, for the vast majority of your life, you are a working class person that sold your labor power in return for a wage. That situates you firmly within the proletarian class. Now that you're a bit older, maybe you're retired, you saved a bit of money to buy a single investment property that now you get rent out of, then that doesn't change the fact that you uh, were uh, working class, you are currently and will continue to be working class, except you have petty bourgeois aspirations. Certain people, and this is actually a nice point I want to end on, There are certain people uh, who are slightly more dogmatic uh, would try to paint every single person with even the smallest sort of investment or extra whatever, like one extra property or something, as petty bourgeois. I personally don't like this sort of outlook because even if there is um, like theoretical basis for it, at the end of the day, if we have an actual dedicated revolutionary project going on, um, I mean like a party and all that, these people aren't going to be touched by the revolution. The guy who owns a restaurant, right, a single restaurant, the guy who owns a small grocery store, these are not the people that we're going to be going after because these people uh, will slowly be integrated into a system of either reorganization underneath the state or as cooperatives uh, organically. This will happen on its own, just like it happened uh, uh, for the most part within, for example, in Vietnam, uh, in Cuba, uh, in the like post-30s period in the Soviet Union, etc., etc. Um, if you own a single investment property even though technically we're like ah, yeah, this is a kind of a petty bourgeois thing to have at the end of the day you are still like a, a herod's breath away from uh, uh, homelessness and poverty and, and and so on this is not the hill that we want to fucking die on mm. does that make sense mm-hmm. right exactly. an actual revolutionary project it, it, the best example to look at is the chinese revolution how they approach these things because then you're going to come to see the massive amounts of pragmatism that needs to come into place when you want to um uh, will basically uh, completely turn society upside down. And usually, if you play your cards right, these same people who are giving you this bullshit fucking canned line, which is a reflection of how badly educated the vast majority of people are on socialism, these people can be some of the strongest proponents of socialism and uh, most active uh, members. In fact, a lot of people, especially within the left, uh, who have to basically get uh, rental property, for example, to survive at the end of the day, because let's say there's no retirement in the United States, there's no fucking pension system. Um, so if you manage to save a bit of extra money and have one retirement property uh, that you get rent out of to live on uh, at the end of the day, if the revolution comes, a lot of these people have willingly 
uh, stated, and I've seen, I've, uh, having spoken to people like this, they wouldn't say, yeah, then I would give this up to the National Housing Fund. That doesn't matter because then I'll be taken care of. I know that the, I won't just be thrown out into the fucking street with uh, medical bills. I can't afford medication. I can't get my uh, grocery bill. And, you know, I can't afford heating and water, etc., etc., etc. So this is fundamentally like uh, Americoid brain uh, <laughs> in action. <laughs> and I think that's my, my you know, uh, my, my piece on that. I just want to say like a very short thing. Uh, everybody's trying to survive and everybody's trying to live as comfortably as they possibly can. The healthiest approach that I've found in this regard, because I always, always super overanalyze sometimes every single interaction that I have with the outside world, which involves finance and money. And I always try to... Uh, as someone who considers himself a proletarian, act the way a proletarian would. But, you know, I, al- I also want to earn bread and eat. So I try to minimize to the best of my ability the amount of labor exploitation that I'm going to engage in. But unfortunately, the way the entire system is wired, that is pretty much impossible when it comes to engaging with any service whatsoever or engaging in anything that generates uh, money that's outside of your uh, usual nine-to-five job. So the strategy that I adapted for myself is try to cause as least harm for maximum uh, potential financial output so that you can live comfortably and don't engage in insane liberal moralism of which i sometimes do unfortunately of putting the baggage of the whole world being wired in an absolutely insane illogical and unproductive way on your back you not uh Putting in 500 bucks into uh, the stock exchange when you can make $5,000 out of it, out of moral reasons, is not going to cause the downfall of capitalism. So invest this 500 bucks and make yourself some fucking cash. We're not going, you're not uh, holding up the banner of, uh, (laughs) of the big dollar sign that Jeff Bezos is at the same time. So you do you, bruv, feed your fucking family, man. We lied. We're coming for that toothbrush. <laughs> Very well uh, said, boys. I think that's all good stuff to keep in mind. We we tend to, you know, try to overanalyze everything and, and nitpick and find these like hyper specific examples, and that's just really after a point, it's just not productive. So you know, just we'll do a, a deeper dive on some of these things. Uh, this was just a broad introductory episode, um, which we hope you guys enjoyed. I think it's been a lot of fun and pretty educational. If you like this, let us know, and we can we can definitely extend the series to talk more about class. Uh, and we want to extend, of course, uh, our deepest uh, and most um, uh, I don't know, warm is that a proper way of saying it? Our most uh, <laughs> sloppy love <laughs> yeah, for our, our lovely our lovely Patreon supporters. Um, without uh, which, we would not be able to do this at all. Um, again, reminding people like you guys, we wouldn't can. be able to be petite bourgeois. Isn't that <laughs> yeah, the whole exactly point right? Yes, yes. Thank you. No, yes. Um, 
<laughs> All of us work uh, real-time jobs, real-time fucking real-life jobs. Fuck, my English is completely fucked today. Um, all of us real uh, work uh, basically uh, day jobs as well. Um, and as a result of uh, the uh, income that we get from Patreon, we can uh, at least take some time off of it so we can dedicate to uh, making this podcast. So you're directly contributing to make our lives easier uh, and uh, giving us the ability to reinvest all that back into this uh, this lovely little project that we started. We've got some cool ideas coming. I think. We- We've, Hakeem mentioned earlier we've got the we want to do the thing with the, the republishing the out of print books which yeah. will be really really cool I'm super excited Fucking for that yes but we've got some other ones too so uh, so stay tuned uh, Stalin and his large spoon will be available in one way or another <laughs> to, for, for your uh, pleasuring needs <laughs> oh god that, they're gonna get the wrong idea alright I'm cutting it off this has been a deep program I'm Hakeem I'm JT and I'm Yugopnik Oh, no, no quip today. No witty remark, huh? <laughs> <laughs> this has been the deprogram. We'll see you later. Oh,